Today on Ag News Daily. So there are a lot of things that I think should give us a little bit of concern there. And I think the market should stay somewhat concerned. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's Mike Pearson here on this Hashtag Market Monday, joined by, as always, Ms. Delaney Howell. Delaney, how you doing? I'm not too bad, Mike. How about you? You know, I'm about the same. We've got the sun kind of peeking through some clouds here, and I tell you what, it is doing wonders for my mood. Uh, I don't have any sun in, in Des Moines today. Oh, well, I'm sure that's headed my way then. Yeah. I know it has been just wet weather. I think we're continued, we're expecting continued wet weather here for the next mm, two weeks, I would say, probably in the plains and Midwest, but yeah, it's not making a lot of farmers happy, I'm going to guess. No, no, it isn't. You know, especially those guys that got their crops out early mm-hmm. and then wanted to get some you know, fall field work done. Maybe they wanted to get some tile in the ground here before things froze up. And now it's just a soupy, mucky, muddy, gross mess. Yes, it is, unfortunately. Well, let's see. It's a mess. There's not a lot of news today, but of course, <laughs> we will get to have a conversation with Ted Seifert a little bit later on. Well, I guess you will. I will. Yeah. There's, yeah, it's a slow Monday. I guess it's Columbus Day, right? Technically. So happy Ugh. Columbus Day, everyone. Um, I, yeah, but a lot now, of now this holiday work. is problematic, Delaney. Why? It's, you were supposed to, the, the good thinking people celebrate Indigenous Peoples Day. Oh, okay. Well. Right. Cause sorry. Columbus was yeah. a, was a colonizer, you know. Well, whatever. You know, this everybody's looking for something to be upset. But yes, I'm upset on this Columbus Day because all the banks are closed. Oh, they are? Well, my banks are closed, apparently. I had hmm. to keep driving around till I found a place to cash a check. Ugh. Yeah, I don't know. I um have been doing homework all day, so I haven't really left my apartment. Well, uh, you're not missing much. No. That's not missing much, folks, in the news, but you will be missing something if you tune out now and don't listen to Ted here Mm -hmm. in just a little bit. But before we get to Ted Delaney, let's run through what little bit of news we do have today, and uh, why don't you kick us off? Okay. Most of the news I have is not super pressing news. Um, Like we said, it's a slow news day. I don't know. I guess people aren't working today because it's Indigenous people, a.k.a. Columbus Day, but... Got a little bit of news here from Brazil. They've reported their first classical swine fever outbreak, which is different from the African swine fever, but symptoms are similar to African swine swine fever. The diseases just cause unrelated. The, the diseases are caused um, by unrelated viruses, but we've seen this first outbreak. It actually happened in late August, but officials didn't have confirmation of this disease until October 6th. So we uh, saw the outbreak in affecting 130 pigs, and it was in the state of the Sierra, or uh, the northern coast of Brazil. So that's where the Hmm. outbreak happened. It's about 500 kilometers away from the limits of the, apparently have a classical swine fever-free zone, and it's about 500 kilometers from there so they're already uh, movement restrictions on animals and their byproducts between the disease free zone and the non-disease free zone so they're trying to curb that and like I said it happened back in August they've just officially got confirmation that that's what the problem was 
You know, and that's surprising to me that it takes, gosh, over yeah. a month before they can figure out exactly what the disease is. But it you know, was a, I guess yeah, I a month and a half, almost two months. Yeah. Really. Huh. You know, I wonder if and listeners in the hog industry, in the animal health industry in America, if this were to break out, would it take that long or are mm-hmm. labs just a little bit faster? I don't know. Let us know what, what your thoughts are mm-hmm. there. I would like to think our labs are a little faster because we've got, like, the veterinary diagnostics lab in Iowa State. We've got the one over uh, Plum Island. Yeah, the one going up in Kansas. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I I figure we'd be faster, but I guess I don't know that. I don't know anything about uh, diseases other than I don't want them. Right. Well, I've got some news coming out of China here, listeners. We have an update. China, their central bank, the People's Bank of China, has reduced... Their, um, the level of cash that banks must hold, you know, their, uh, uh, reserves, I suppose, they've dropped it by a hundred basis points, basically one percentage point. And, um, the, the idea is this is going to force more cash out into the economy. And in the past, when China has done this sort of thing, we have seen commodity imports from China grow like crazy because banks are out there. They're making more loans. People have a little bit more money. They're buying more food and businesses are looking to buy more or import more commodities. However, probably not going to have as big of an impact this time because the reason they're doing it now is the trade war with uh, the United States is starting to hurt the Chinese economy. Mm-hmm. This is something that President Trump has said, you know, he, he's going to do. He's going to shake the Chinese economy, and that's what will bring him to the table. And I, this is perhaps an indication that maybe it's working. And so this yeah. is designed to shore up the Chinese economy. We probably won't see a whole lot to benefit from it um, as far as commodity imports go, but it might be an indication that the trade war could be shorter than I had anticipated. Yes. That is true. I was reading an article today. It was an op-ed piece talking about um, kind of the timeline for when they thought that this would happen. And yeah, that definitely is supported by kind of what you're talking about. And its stock market is down 21% year over year. Yeah. And their, their industrial output is slowing. Their currency is weakening. So I don't know. It was interesting. I was um, on Market to Market last week and had John Roche sitting with me at the desk and he said, you know, I think this is definitely a political move and I think we're going to see something happen around midterm elections, especially if it looks like we're going to see the red wave. Right. Or the blue wave or some sort of wave that could shake things up. Well, especially the red wave. His thought process was if it looks like President Trump is going to have continued support in Congress, the Chinese might want to come to the table a little quicker. Gotcha. So if it's a blue wave, China might just sit on their hands and kind of wait for 2020. And again, this was just John Roach's, you know, opinion. He doesn't have any more insight than any of the rest of us really do. But yeah, I thought that was interesting. Yeah. Well, he does spend a fair bit of time over in Asia. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So he's probably might have a little bit more connection than than I do anyway. Right. Exactly. Well, uh, you know, speaking of midterms coming up, it is widely expected that tomorrow at about 3 p.m., the Trump administration will announce officially the sale of E15 year round. They are reportedly going to lift the uh, RVP, uh, the Reed Vapor Pressure um, uh, thing, waiver that has blocked E15 from being sold year round. Delaney and I will be over listening to President Trump at a rally in Council Bluffs tomorrow evening. So we'll see if he follows up on it and if he brings 
you know, any more information to us. Delaney, have you ever been yeah. to a presidential rally before? I have not. I've only been to um, not caucuses. What are they called? Uh, yeah. I, primaries. Yeah. Oh, primaries. Yeah. I've only seen people speak at primaries, never at a presidential election. However, I was reading something this morning that said President Trump may even announce it tomorrow morning before he flies into Iowa. Oh, that makes even more sense. Right. But yeah. as Ted Seifert's going to mention later on, he doesn't see this happening again. I mean, we've seen it kind of, you know, floated around in the news for yeah. a couple months now. So I really hope he shares something positive for rural America. Boy, we could use it. We could. Yeah. Well, that's rural America. I've got some news, Delaney, coming out of rural Canada. And uh, this is coming from the Seed Synergy Partners. And so these are partners and member companies that work together to bring kind of a consultation process and how plant breeders can add value to their seeds up in Canada. And they put out a press release. They are really excited that uh, Lawrence McCauley, the Minister of Agriculture and Agri-Food, is launching a new consultation period on potential amendments to the plant breeders' rights regulations. And so this will include value creation in cereals, so like wheat, where there isn't any genetically modified crops, so to speak of. Uh, hopefully, this is going to increase the investment in research and innovation. And they say this should help position Canada as a leader in more variety development going forward. So that's yeah, some good news there for our Canadian listeners. Mm -hmm, it is. Well, I've got some bad news for our Brazilian listeners. And maybe not bad news. That's not, maybe not the best way to uh, present this. But crushers in Brazil are running out of soybeans um, mm. for the 2017 and 18 season. As Chinese buyers are buying up their soybean, their soybean stocks, of course, because of what's going on here in the U.S., um, Brazilian crushers have been working with negative margins since the second half of September, wow. which has led to some to, which has led to the slow slowening slowening is that a, that's not a word which has led the to the slow down yeah pace of processing. Um, according to the University of Sao Paulo's research institution. Interesting. So when are the Brazilians going to be tendering some offers for American well, beans, I wonder? It sounds like Brazilian soybean inventories are expected to fall to one and a half million tons this season, which is the lowest level since 1999. However, we have to keep in mind that they're also probably going to transition some acres into more planted soybeans this year. So, you sure. know, we should see some sort of balance out there, I would guess. But maybe they'll be looking here to buy some U.S. soybeans to uh, replenish their stocks. And we're actually, uh, let's see, I think Wednesday probably of this week, Mike, we're going to have a really great conversation. And I encourage everybody mm -hmm. to tune in for Dr. Frayne Olson. We're going to be talking about the possibilities of buying soybeans and then exporting them throughout through other countries into China and the legalities of that. Right, right. And it'll be interesting to see. I mean, soybean crushers here in North America, particularly in the U.S., have seen phenomenally profitable margins, while their compatriots down in Brazil are seeing negative margins. I wonder if there isn't an incentive for Brazilian crushers to just turn their plants off and buy product, meal or oil, directly from the U.S. It's mm -hmm. going to be interesting to watch. It is going to be interesting to watch. 
Well, I've got just one other piece of soybean-related news, and I bring this up. It doesn't really have any bearing directly on our farmer or producer listeners, but it is something we're going to be seeing a lot of here as we get into earnings season. And this is coming from Louis Dreyfus. Uh, mm. Their first half net profit dropped by more than a third, and here's why. They have to mark down their soybean hedges as losses in their profit statements. So basically, because soybean prices have uh, have fallen, and Louis Dreyfus is a major user of soybeans, their hedges have to be marked down to their current value, even though it's those hedges that, as they mention a little bit later on, that are going to allow them to have profitable crushing margins throughout the year. So we're going to see this. Cargill's going to have a similar Similar headline happen, you know, uh, all the rest of them. Anybody who's a, a major hedger, because of the way we have to mark to market these uh, these hedges. So while you listen to this, you know, this was reported by Reuters. They talk about how this is indicative of weakness in the commodity sector. And, of course, we know there is weakness in the commodity sector. Mm-hmm. But it's not catastrophic. Louis Dreyfus isn't losing a pile of money here because they're playing around in the soybean market. It's because of the way they have to mark these hedges for their balance sheet and profit and loss outlooks that they present to Wall Street. So just I'm saying it just so listeners, when you hear it, the sky isn't falling. It isn't a catastrophe. It's more of a of a financial, I guess, a bait and switch than it is anything too fundamental. Well, I'm going to counter up with that, Mike, and talk about the balance sheet here for producers. Purdue University's mm. put together some statistics here looking at um, really this this fiscal year for farmers. Total U.S. farm debt has grown by 46% since 2010. Um, and this is according to one of their economists there, Brent Gloy, one of the reasons that ag lenders are becoming more concerned um, about loaning to producers. And he said, also said later on that total farm sector indebtedness currently stands at $407 billion with billion with a B with total interest cost on that debt forecasted to be $21.9 billion for 2018. I I think a couple other interesting pieces to note from that is real estate debt stands at about $248 billion or 61% of total debt, which is up 55% since 2010. Okay. Well, since 2010, that makes sense. We saw an incredible rise mm-hmm. in land values since then, and that's going to you know, yeah. pull some more, some more lending together. However, the, okay, yes. so this is the last piece I want to say, because you and I have had this discussion about whether we're setting ourselves up here for another 1980s cycle, and... Mm-hmm. Also, according to their research at Purdue University, real farm debt is nearing the all-time high level, which has occurred or which did occur in 1980. And if it grows just another 4% in 2019, it will pass that record high. Yes, which is bad news. But the reason I don't think we're necessarily setting ourselves up for a 1980s type scenario is because in the 1980s, just the way that lenders wrote notes and the way they collateralized those notes allowed for a waterfall effect once things started to go bad. I think today, a lot of bankers, credit unions, you know, whoever else, 
took advantage of those lessons, and now they, they're a lot more diligent in what they secure those notes with, and we won't see that waterfall effect. I, I don't doubt that we will see people declaring bankruptcy here in the next couple of years, absent some big kind of change. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I, gosh, Delaney, I certainly hope it doesn't spiral into an industry-wide catastrophe. Yeah, and you know, I don't think that it will at this point, but I think it's definitely something that we just need to stay cognizant of. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. It's always it's always wise to keep an eye in the rearview mirror and and use the lessons from the past to avoid making those same mistakes in the present. Even though I'm not very good at that, Delaney. <laughs> no, that's okay. You not you are not always good at that. But you know who is good at that, Mike? Who's that? The Zayner Group. Yes, they are. And friends, Zayner and the Zayner Group and our good friend Ted Seifert are sponsors of our markets, and they will be joining us here in just a little bit. If you want more insight, you can give them a call at 312-277-0050 or visit them on the web at zayner.com. And Delaney, let's see where we close today. Slightly mixed on the day with corn lower. The December contract down one and three quarter cents at 366 and a half. The March down one and a half finished at 378 and a half. In soybeans, slightly higher today with the November contract up three quarters of a cent at 869 and three quarters. The January up a half at 883 even. Wheat was the loser today with the Chicago contract December down seven cents at 514 even. The March down six and a quarter to finish the day at 534 even. Jumping over to the world of livestock, we've got the live cattle complex seeing slight gains today with the October up 37.5 cents at 114.1750, the December up 10 to close at 118.25. Mixed trade in feeder cattle with front month October down 10 cents at 157.65, the November up 20 at 158.4250. And mixed trade in lean hogs with the October up 25 cents at 68.45 and the December unchanged on the day at 57.55. A quick look, of course, at our friends in the dairy industry for class three milk, the October up a penny at 15.82 with November down three cents to close at 16.02. And before we get to that conversation with our friend Ted Seifert, let's get a word from our sponsors for hashtag Market Monday. Hashtag Market Monday brought to us by our friends at Barber Cattle. Are you looking to buy or sell quality cattle? Make Barber Cattle your first call. Laura Barber of Barber Cattle and Sons of Kentucky can connect you with high-quality cattle, and they work nationwide. Call Laura at 859-229-7691. That number again, 859-229-7691. Get the best cattle with Barber. All right. For today's Market Monday, we're having on one of our favorite market analysts, Ted Seifert, who is the chief market strategist of Zayner Ag Hedge. Ted, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me today about the markets. Pleasure's always mine, Delaney. Thanks for having me. Ted, what's going on today? It feels like we had a pretty slow day here across the grains, except for the wheat pits. Yeah, no, it was a rather quiet or low-volume traded day. It's the Columbus Day holiday, so... You know, it's sort of one of those pseudo holidays where the markets are still open, but the volume is very much lacking. Um, And just to put it into perspective, usually my drive into work is somewhere between an hour and 15 minutes and an hour and 35 minutes long. Today I got here in under 40. Mm. So, um, yeah, just sort of a lack of market participation. We didn't have a whole lot of news either, uh, so that kind of helped it. Um, Or I guess that didn't help anything. But, uh you know, we are watching weather, and that's something that we're continuing to be concerned about. Yes, we're looking at a wet week here, and it's been really soggy, everything north of I-80. 
we've had problems there, and we are going to continue to have those problems lingering for some time. However, a little bit of a change here in the longer-term forecast, you are looking at below normal temperatures and also below normal precipitation for both the 6 to 10 and 8 to 14 day outlooks. So that might be tempering some of our weather concerns, uh, especially when you consider that we're not really behind on crop progress. Now we'll see an update on that tomorrow afternoon because of the holiday. Uh, but for the most part, we've been ahead, running ahead of crop pro or harvest progress. Uh, and that's really been driven by the south. The, the areas in the north are the problem areas. And I do think there is good reason for the market to be a little bit concerned. These are areas that can get cold very quickly, uh, and we could get some damage of the soybeans. We could have corn. If, it get, if soils get too saturated, then we get some heavy winds. We get corn going over. Um, so there are a lot of things that I think should give us a little bit of concern there. And I think the market should stay somewhat concerned. Uh, when you look at today, though, it was mostly technical in nature. You had corn run into its major resistance up at 370. I mean, we had a high of 338 and three quarters, but you know, still for the six day in a row, couldn't get up and over that 370. So you had a bit of a pullback there. Soybeans, you know, the the 875 level, we got to 874 and three quarters and sort of failed there. Uh, although we did bounce back off of our our lows very well, ended up closing closer to the highs. Um, and then wheat, same thing. You know, running right into that major. Uh, downtrend line resistance, had a bit of a pullback, uh, stopped just short of finding support, um, but either way, a bigger down day. So mostly technical in nature here on a Monday. We'll see what Tuesday brings. Um, the Brazilian election, I think, didn't mm -hmm. get a whole lot of play here on a Monday. That might be something that is a much more of a feature or a focus of the market here on Tuesday. And then also, of course, we do have uh, our USDA October WASD report coming out on Thursday. Absolutely. Ted, let's start by talking about the Brazilian election. What impact do you think that this is going to have specifically in the soybean markets tomorrow? Well, you know, you would think it should have a positive effect. Um, for one, it should have a positive effect on the Brazilian currency. And for two, they're talking about taxes on soybean exports. So put those two things together and that should be fairly friendly for soybeans. It may be part of the reason why we bounced, you know, 10 cents off of our lows there in the soybeans at one point. Uh, but we certainly weren't off to the races here today. We'll see if that takes hold more so tomorrow. Absolutely. And then, of course, the other thing, as we're talking about Brazilian soybeans here, Ted, I was reading an article earlier just today talking about Brazilian crush capacity and Brazilian crush running. And it's saying that their their margins are have been negative here in the second quarter of September. What does that impact do for Brazilian's soybean crush capacity and margins moving forward? So, Delaney, to answer your question, you know, uh, there's so much demand for soybeans to, for export in, in South America as a whole, but Brazil in particular. So when you have such a high demand for soybeans for export, there's a premium on, the, on, on exporting beans rather than crushing them. So the market's doing its job. It, it is holding back soybeans and, and putting them toward, uh, holding back soybeans from the crush and pushing them towards the export because the export demand is so strong. So it's a function of the market. Crush demand goes negative in Brazil in order to stop them from crushing as many beans and to, to be able to export more beans or to have as many beans for export as possible. Uh, and therefore, it does so sort of open some opportunities for countries like Argentina, which they really aggressively crush soybeans. They are, aside from China, they are the largest crusher, the second largest crusher in the world. Then there's us in Brazil that are pretty much on par. 
but it also might give us some opportunities because our crush margins are really very good, um, and it might mean some more meal exports for us. How many more meal exports could it mean for us, Ted? Well, that's a good question, Delaney. I think I would expect Argentina to get the lion's share of the increase in in uh, uh, in meal exports, but. Yeah, you know, I don't know. We've been seeing our meal exports between 200 and 500,000 metric tons a week uh, on our weekly export sales numbers. I think we're already seeing part of that. Uh, so I don't know if there's much more benefit from what we've already been seeing. But, you know, if we can average between 400 and 600,000 metric tons of meal exports a, a week, that's a really solid uh, number, and it's much better than what we were looking at last year. Ted, how much longer can we keep up this running at a fast pace for uh, soybean processing? That's a, that's a good question for the, uh, the soybean processors. I mean, we don't really know, and we haven't really known for a few years as far as what our actual crush, crush capacity is. It is sort of a moving target as we do become more efficient, uh, but the, the thought has been that we are running up against crush capacity here in the United States and have been for quite some time. So, uh, you look at the USDA's reaction to that uh, on the last WASDE report, They even, even though we saw a significant increase in production, they were only able to incru- increase crush by 10 million bushel. Uh, you don't think that wasn't because the demand isn't there, because crush margins are fantastically good. I mean, they're record. Uh, it's just simply because the USDA doesn't see any more capacity beyond where we're at right now. Ted, I want to switch tracks here a little bit and talk about the corn market and specifically some hopefully big news that we get uh as early as tomorrow from President Trump. It's rumored, of course, that he's going to announce the sales of E15 year-round tomorrow at his rally or in D.C. before he heads to his rally here in Council Bluffs. Mm -hmm. What support should we see added to the market if he does make that announcement? Well, I think that would be obviously very friendly for the market, but more so in particular because we haven't we haven't really, I don't believe, added a premium into the market, you know, sort of expecting something like this. Mm -hmm. Because We've been talking about this on and off for about two months now. Absolutely. And we haven't seen it actually happen. So I think the market is taking more of a we'll believe it when we see it type uh, approach to this. Uh, And if we do get that announcement at some point tomorrow, if I'm not expecting it, I Mm kind of think that we won't. But if we do get that announcement at some point tomorrow, I think that the market should find that really very friendly. And I would think that that could get us up and over that 370 mark and that December corn that has been just a brick wall for us. And when we do, uh, you'd think that we'd find a fair amount of short covering behind that. You know, the funds are really rather short leaning into this uh, week. So uh, that could be a, a rather positive development for the market, and that might break us out of this technical sort of deadlock that we've been in. Ted, I know you like to uh, do balance sheets, and, and you focus a lot on the math side of things. If we do get that announcement um, tomorrow or later this week, how many acre, how many bushels of production would that bring out of our ending stocks or beginning stocks? That's a good question. A lot of that depends on how we're structured because it, being allowed to run E15 year around doesn't necessarily mean that we will. Okay, But in, in our best case scenario, um, that adds another 350 roughly million bushels uh, to, our, to our demand. And so you know, you, you'd look at a 1.9 billion bushel carryover and you bring that down to a 1.5. Well, then, wow, that is a very friendly thing. Now, I don't think that best-case scenario scenario happens. I think ultimately it maybe adds 150 million bushel to ethanol production. Um, so, you know, it, it's a positive thing. It most certainly is a positive thing, and it opens the door up for more positive things down the road. Uh, but I don't know if it's a silver bullet, so to speak, for the corn market. 
that being said, I'm fairly friendly for the corn market in general. So it's just kind of more fuel to that fire. Absolutely. Ted, in uh, leading up to the days here before the WASDE report that comes out later this week, as you mentioned, what is the trade estimating to see on that report? And also, what are Zaner's estimates on that report? In what capacity? Are you looking for ending stocks or are you looking for production numbers? Let's talk about production numbers first, Ted. Okay, absolutely. So we are looking for a slight increase in yield for both corn and soybeans. We're looking for a 181.8. That'd be a half a bushel and a, a half bushel an acre higher on the corn yield. Uh, for soybeans, we're looking for a 53.1. That's 0.3 bushel acre higher for soybean yield. By the way, for both of them, we are decreasing harvested acreage just slightly, 200,000 acres in the corn. Um, and then, uh, oh, I'm sorry, 300,000 acres in the corn and 200,000 acres in the soybeans. So when you put all that together, our production numbers are pretty consistent to what we were looking at last month. We're not looking for a big increase in the production numbers. And therefore, when we look at ending stocks, now keep in mind we have some bigger beginning stocks based on what the USDA gave us on the quarterly grain stocks, September 1st quarterly grain stocks uh, reports. So uh, we are looking for modestly higher ending stocks for corn at a 1.872 billion bushel carryover. For soybeans, we're all the way up at a 0.95 billion bushel carryover or uh, 895 million bushel carryover. And for wheat, just a another modest increase there at 958 million. Ted, going back there to the harvest production, you said lowered in, in soybeans and corn. Is it largely due to weather or abandoned acres? Why are we seeing a drop in acreage? Ah, very good. Um, well, for one, I'm not sure we were as aggressive planting as, as the USDA uh, thought, but but more so, really more than anything else. Uh, we had some very wet areas going into uh, going into planting and or, or even after planting that got drowned out. We saw a lot of it on the Pro Farmer Crop Tour, uh, especially on the Iowa-Minnesota border. Um, and I think we just washed out a fair amount of acres there, uh, on top of maybe just a, a slightly lighter overall planted acreage number. Okay. Ted, I want to end the discussion here by talking about the meat markets. Let's start by talking live cattle. So slight gains for the day in the October and December contract, both. Ted, how much – I mean, are we, are we in a downtrend right now for live cattle or an uptrend? What are you seeing long term? Well, for the most part, we've – in the last couple of weeks, we've been in a very sideways pattern for for live cattle. I mean, we broke out to the upside there in early September when we went from – Oh, 114 December live cattle up to 119. And then we've been kind of trading a range between 117 and 120 ever since. To me, it looks like a bull flag uh, pattern on the chart. There's a lot of people that will say that we've got too much supply at the moment. And while that may be the case, I mean, we do have quite a lot of supply. Our demand has been very good, both domestically and for export. But our domestic demand is really, very solid. So I'm a bit of a demand bull for the live cattle right now. <clears throat> Consumer confidence is at a 18 year high. Uh, so we're going out, we're going to restaurants, we're eating steaks. And I think that will continue on. So I'm still looking for some higher prices. Uh, not saying that we couldn't get a pullback down to say the 115.25 level in that December live cattle contract. But overall, I think we will get over the 120 mark. Ted, what about you when you look out here at uh, the beginning of the 2019 year, the calendar year here, do you expect it to see continued strength in the, let's say, cattle market in particular, but proteins in general? Yeah, I mean, you look at the demand for proteins as a whole here in the United States, and we just talked about cattle. I think eventually we're going to see uh, trade above the 120. So, yes, obviously that, yes. 
but yeah, our domestic demand has been really fantastic for protein, both for pork, hogs, I'm sorry, pork, beef, poultry, across the board. So uh, I'm a demand bull for, for livestock as a whole. Ted, final question here for you. When we look at the lean hog markets, why are we seeing the spread widening between the October and the December contracts? Because your weights are getting bigger, Delaney. Uh, when you have that happening, um, that means more supply down the road. So uh, while we have this upfront demand and sort of upfront need, and that October contract is really rocked and rolled, uh, the December is lagging behind. And also technical. I mean, we're really having a hard time with that 200-day moving average in that December contract. I think ultimately we will get over it, but I wouldn't be surprised to see a bit of a correction before we do. All right. Ted Seifred, before we let you go, how can folks find you if they have their own questions they'd like asked and answered? Absolutely. You can reach me directly at 312-277-0113. That is my direct line. Otherwise, you can find us on the web at www.zaner, that's Z-A-N-E-R.com. You can read a bit about us. You can also sign up for our our morning Ag Hedge newsletter. And finally, if you're interested and Twitter is your sort of thing, you can find me on Twitter at, at the TED spread. Uh, I like to talk about hot dogs and sometimes markets <laughs> as well. Oh, awesome. Ted, thanks so much for breaking down the markets today. No, my pleasure. All right. Well, again, a big thank you to Ted Seifred. And of course, the WASD comes out this week, Mike. So we will be watching that as well. Watching it like hawks, absolutely, Delaney. Mm -hmm. And the listeners, if you want to watch what we're doing like hawks, you can always follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Just search for Ag News Daily or visit our website at agnewsdaily.com. And with that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.